Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by J.D. Scholten. He's a fifth generation Iowan who, after graduating high school, played minor league baseball. In 2018, he was the Democratic candidate in Iowa's fourth congressional district, coming just three points shy of unseating Representative Steve King. He's now a board member of One Country, an organization dedicated to reopening the dialogue with rural communities, rebuilding trust and respect and advancing an opportunity agenda for rural Americans. Before we begin, if you enjoyed today's interview or any of the other episodes that have been released, please take 30 seconds to click that subscribe button and give us a five star rating. It's really appreciated. J.D. Scholten, thank you for joining me. Ah, thank you for having me, Edward. You took on Representative Steve King in 2018, coming within 10,000 votes of unseating him. Why did you decide to run for Congress and in particular against Steve King? I was never wanting to get into politics, but I was always active. My family uh, was active voters being uh, raised uh, here in Iowa with all the caucuses and getting an opportunity to meet presidential candidates. It's always been around me. And then when 2016 happened, the election, uh, I, like a lot of first-time candidates, were very influenced by by that. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do. At the time, I was living in Seattle. And my I went home for Thanksgiving, so a couple weeks after the election, and I went to see my grandma. And my grandma's my inspiration in my life. And uh, she... She thought I should – or the last thing she told me was, you need to move back to Iowa and take care of our family farm. And our family farm, we rent to a, a family friend, and so it's not like I was going to get into farming all of a sudden. But that started uh, something. And then a month later, she actually passed away, and at her funeral where I gave the eulogy, that's when I felt the pull to come on home. Uh, a month later after that, the inauguration happened, and then uh, the next day I was in Seattle. And I went to the Women's March. And I was just so blown away by just the raw power and energy that I knew I had to do something. And so I decided to move back to Iowa. Out in Seattle, I was a dime a dozen when it comes to uh, Democrats. And, and here I saw Iowa, which is traditionally a purple state, go ruby red. And I wanted to fight back, uh, fight for our democracy. And and uh, and I didn't know what that meant. And then uh, there was a woman who was who ran the previous cycle that was going to run again, but she dropped out of the race and there was nobody in the race for about a month. And that's when I decided to launch the campaign. I couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore. And it was pretty humbly uh, launched. Um, I didn't know if I could raise five bucks, but uh, um, the one thing I knew I could do, because uh, it's a huge district, it's 39 counties. It's about a five hour drive east, west, three hour uh, drive north south and uh, I knew I could get out there to the people and and work on our message there and uh, we started a very strong grassroots campaign that just continued to grow and uh, we peaked the very last week like every campaign wanted and we took a race that Trump won the district by 27 points and we moved the needle 24 points and we got close but but we still lost. You mentioned there how you changed the dynamics of that district, a district that had been deep, deep red prior to your campaign against Steve King. 
Do you think that as your campaign in Iowa's fourth congressional district shows, Democrats shouldn't be afraid to compete in those districts? Uh, absolutely. And, and that's been my big thing. Uh, you look at the Democratic Party and what national pundits uh, have talked about, especially as a result of the 2018 election, saying that it's often referred to as the Whole Foods Party. So uh, very urban, very suburban. Uh, that's where the base is at. But I get frustrated because uh, we're a dollar general district, and I don't know if that translate over, overseas or not, but uh, uh, Whole Foods is, is kind of an upscale rest, or a, a grocery store where, where dollar general, they don't even have fresh produce. It's all canned uh, uh, foods and, and stuff like that. And so um, we're, we're a district that is aging. We're a district that uh, is losing population. Uh, and there's not a lot of growth economically and wages have been stagnant for a long time. Uh, and, and so what I wanted to do and is really become, uh, well, we have a huge opportunity. I, I felt with who representative Steve King is and, and changing the narrative of the district and having a lot of opportunities and taking risks in, in this district because, uh, because of the controversy that surrounds Steve King. And so uh, we were able to just get out there and, and, and talk to folks on a personal basis as much as we could and just really denationalize the race and, and focus on just the 4th District. And some of the things that I'm proud of is we got 25,000 more votes than there are Democrats registered in this district in, in a midterm, which tends to lean a little bit uh, conservative. And then we had a gubernatorial race, and in this district, I outperformed the the uh, Democratic candidate in this district by 17% in that race. And then my home county, which is Woodbury County, uh, we or King has never lost uh, this this county, and I I got 54%. And that's it. Just goes to show that uh, when people know you, um, they'll vote for you regardless of their voter history. As you mentioned that you managed to pull off an upset, even though you didn't win the seat, by closing that race to the smallest difference between the Democrat and Republican candidate since Steve King has been the representative for Iowa's fourth. You did that by meeting voters. And would that be the lesson that you give to other Democrats that it's about going out there and hearing the views of these rural Americans that can help you win those seats or at least perform a lot better than Democrats have previously done. Yeah, absolutely. But but it, you can't just go out there because I think a lot of Democrats say they go out there. But when you go into some of these counties that are 80 percent Republican, it's not easy to go out there and go to a coffee shop where you have no idea where people are on the political spectrum and just talk. But that's what we have to do in districts like this. Um you see often time uh, times that a candidate will go out and talk to the like the one Democrat who's on the, the county supervisor or something like that. You got to get out there to the people and, and you also have to have the right message. And uh, I thought we did a great job and not only myself, uh, but but my team. We had a, a great we had a very unique team that that. Um, really just did a lot of unconventional things, but we made it work to our advantage. And 
it was it was it was a bummer that we lost absolutely and and difficult to to comprehend but at the same time we're all pretty proud of what we were able to accomplish because he's never only one time has he lost by less than 20 in uh uh every other time uh, he he average uh, victory before our campaign was 23. Representative King was stripped of his committee posts over controversial remarks he made about white supremacy. That wasn't the first time that King had made remarks that had been deemed racist. Why do you think Republicans finally decided to act at that point? Do you think it was potentially the close race that they were afraid that if they didn't do something, they might lose that seat forever. I I think we definitely had a factor in all that. I don't know what ultimately made that decision. I know that he said the same exact things. He he, he denies what the New York Times post or what they wrote about. And he said he he, he plays the victim a lot in in all this. Uh, But here's, what I do know is he said pretty much what he said in the New York Times on television, on WHO television, which is out of Des Moines in October. So when he said the same thing to the New York Times, uh, the senator who's up for re-election here in 2020, uh, Joni Ernst, she called the remarks racist. And a lot of the folks uh, have denounced him, like the governor, the Republican governor uh, has questioned him lately and and uh so all these people after the election conveniently have have uh challenged him and last week uh president trump had a event or a couple events here in iowa and senator grassley and, and senator ernst rode on air force one with trump uh king asked to be on but but he was rejected for we don't know cnn reported that um and, and so you, you do see on some level the Republican Party distancing themselves from him. Um, but I don't know what uh, is going to happen. And uh, I know right now he has uh, three primary opponents. And, and so he's actually going to have to campaign for the first time in, in uh, a long time. Last, last cycle, he just pretty much avoided us and didn't really do much. Um, and, and now he's doing a town hall in all 39 counties. I mean, I, I did that, uh, last cycle because of, he wasn't, uh, out there. And so, um, it, it's really going to be interesting. And in, you see the battle between him and the media, uh, the Washington post, uh, wrote about his side trip. He went on a Holocaust uh, visit to Poland, uh, to see several of the sites. And then he, he went down to Austria as a side trip to meet with uh, their far right group, which has ties to to neo Nazis, and and the Washington Post uh, wrote about that. And then the week of the election, uh, he referred to Mexicans as dirt, and he he challenged that the uh, the Weekly Standard didn't have the tape of that. Well, they released the tape, and you can hear it. And so it's really interesting that when he has all these controversies and these back to back controversies where he says the the media is is out to get him, I really question why would he go have an hour conversation or 56 minute conversation with The New York Times and not tape the event himself uh, or record the event himself? 
and and now he's trying to uh, play victim to uh, the quote unquote media's attacks on him. There are those that don't live in Iowa who would look at this race between yourself and Representative King. They would look at the remarks that he's made in the past, that he's made since his re-election, and they'd ask, how does he keep getting re-elected? Mm-hmm. Would you explain how that occurs? How does he keep winning a seat when he's so controversial? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's something I've had to digest <laughs> over the last few months. Um, I mean, there's a 70,000... Uh, voter advantage, registered uh, uh, Republicans advantage over the Democrats. And ultimately, a lot of his uh, controversies, they don't or they're not as talked about in the district as they are on national media. And in the district, there's seven different media markets. It's so big that uh, it's it's hard. You can't just put ads on one TV. You have to um, uh, do it all over and, and, and not only in Iowa, uh, I had to run ads in Nebraska, South Dakota and uh, Minnesota, all to kind of get into different counties all throughout. And so it's it's a hard uh, when you're fighting uphill against the numbers. And then it's also hard uh, uh, to get the media attention that you need. The, the other part of it, too, is um, the the voters. I mean, you before my campaign, the, the several uh, campaigns before, they were the ones who were talking about Steve King's controversy. And it wasn't a third party. And, and I think what we saw last cycle was that there was third parties and media and, and different things that were talking about his controversies. Because before that, it would just be like an opponent saying, oh, he's done, he said this and he's done this. And I think voters really question when an opponent calls them out for something because they're thinking that the opponent's only saying that to to win the election um but the, i mean it, it's it's tough i mean he's he's uh very controversial uh, he often says a lot of racist things and and uh, it, it's tough to have that as my representative and the the frustrating thing is there's a lot of things that this district needs, and we don't have a representative who uh, focuses on the needs of the district. We have a representative who's selfish, who likes to focus on his ideology more than anything else. And what's happening in Austria, he's been to Austria five out of the last six years, um, meeting with the far right groups there. Uh, he loves to talk about the border wall, which uh, is thousands of miles away. Well, we're, we're in a farm crisis here in Iowa and Iowa's fourth district. We're the second most agriculture producing district in America. And we need help here. And he's not on any committees right now. And, and so um, we, we really question what is he doing right now? Because of the opponent you were facing, having such strong views, and despite consultants telling you that you shouldn't discuss the topic, you talked about how immigration is vital to the economy during your campaign. Why did you ignore the advice of the consultants that you got and promote the benefits of immigration? Why was that so important for you? Yeah, the I don't believe in trickle down economics. And I, don't, I would say most of the Democratic Party doesn't as well. 
and that's also uh, plays for for trickle down politics. I don't like when DC tells me what I need to be saying to my constituents. And so what I did was I got out there to the people. I went to all 39 counties three times. And the first time I went out there, I stopped everywhere. I stopped on all these tiny towns in these main streets. And I asked folks, uh, what's what's happening in their lives? And healthcare was by far the number one thing that was affecting people. But a lot of these business owners, a workforce was right up there. And so in these, and I didn't ask people where they were politically. I just had, was engaged with conversation with them. And, and a lot of them are, are, we're all for immigration reform and, and finding some common sense solution to that. And the reason we, we have uh, uh, like sanctuary cities and, and people are frustrated because uh, there's 13 million undocumented people. Well, the reason we have that is because of people like Steve King that have just not been able to f- solve immigration reform and, and and just kick the can down the road. And as a result, we have to put these Band-Aid policies over everything when everybody knows we need to to have full on immigration reforms because we haven't had that since 1986. And so uh, talking to the farmers and and their needs, talking to small businesses in, in both uh, the urban areas and the rural areas, their needs for a workforce, uh, that's, it, it was common sense to, to talk about it. You think that the issues that Republicans, the issues that individuals like Representative Steve King claim exists with immigration, with migrants in the country, would actually be solved if they adopted the policies that Democrats have been pushing for to help migrants integrate, help migrants come to America legally and through a system without persecuting them. Right. And and, and the thing is, we, we do need a secure border. There's no doubt about that. But we need uh, agriculture needs security, too. I mean, we're a secure nation because we have uh, we're a food secure nation. And you look at the amount of undocumented workers, both in the agriculture field and construction, b- both pretty uh, prominent industries here in the fourth district. Um, it's it, it's shocking the amount of folks uh, who use immigrant labor. Yet we have Steve King as our representative. It, it's it's it's. I don't know. It blows my mind uh, and uh, have folks outside the district think we are like we think similarly to Steve King because he's our representative and he's been our representative since uh, the last 17 years. Uh, it's it's tough to to grasp. Given that you still have clear opposition to representative Steve King's views and the way that he conducts himself in office. And given that you managed to get so close to unseating him in 2018, have you considered running against him in 2020? Uh, I, I have. And it's it started. It's a process. Last time I announced my candidacy around July 24th. Um, so that's um, a little over a month away. And so I, I'm thinking about it again, and 
and uh, I've gotten pushed. Obviously, I've gotten pushed to run again, both locally and, and by national folks. But I've also uh, gotten pushed to run for Senate as well. And so um, I'm, I'm kind of finalizing my decision here in the next few weeks. And then uh, uh, I'll prepare to uh, launch a campaign. I'm more likely to run again than not run again. And uh, it's just kind of finalizing the decision here uh, shortly. You're going to run for office again. It's just which office you contest next. Pretty much. Uh, I'd, I'd be shocked if I didn't run for something at this point. Um, we've, I've, I've been blessed to have a, a lot of support no matter what, uh, I decide to do. And, and, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, it, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult for me because my state uh, representative, my state senator, my governor, uh, my rep- House or U.S. representative, uh, my two U.S. senators, and my president are all Republicans. And so uh, there's not a quote unquote easy seat for me to win. Um, so, so it's, it's, but it's, it's not just a, about winning. Uh, it's also about, um, um, you know, fighting for the, your district and, uh, there's a lot of things that I'm trying to do even outside the world of being an elected official uh, by bringing in technologies in, uh, in the industry into this district uh, and uh, with my nonprofit that I started after uh, the, the uh, election, uh, anti-poverty nonprofit, uh, working on several issues like the earned income tax credit uh, that helps the number one policy to get low-income people out of poverty, especially children. Uh, those are some of the things I, I'm working on right now, um, but definitely would like to be in office. Uh, to, to <laughs> I, I could do a lot better there than I, I could outside the office, probably. You mentioned there the nonprofit organization that you recently launched called Working Hero Iowa which is dedicated to raising awareness around the earned income tax credit. Why did you decide to focus on this issue and why is it important to Iowans? Yeah, it's a difficult, the EITC is a difficult thing to talk about because it's not really self-described. It's one of those classic uh, policies that um, does a lot of good, but people who uh, receive it or, or potentially could receive it, don't know about it. And, and that's what we see nationally. 25% of the eligible recipients aren't, um, aren't receiving the benefits of this. And so that's the biggest thing is we wanted to raise awareness of this. This uh, working hero existed in California already. And towards the end of my campaign, the um, uh, there was a, a group, uh, anti-poverty group that came out to Iowa and, and talked with me and, and they contributed to my campaign. And then after the election, we, we stayed in touch and they they really wanted to raise their profile and, and raise the profile of the earned income tax credit. And there's no better way to do that than in Iowa during a caucus year. And so I've been able to do events with uh, quite a few of the presidential candidates on raising awareness and, and asking them what they've done in the past to help uh, with the anti-poverty initiatives or specifically with the EITC and uh, what they're willing to do if they become president. And so uh, it, 
it was just a natural fit. You find yourself in that fortunate position being from Iowa with presidential candidates coming through the state to campaign. Are you confident with the support you've received from some Democratic candidates that whoever wins the nomination, this issue would be taken up? Yeah, it's everybody's been able to take it up pretty easily it's it's not too controversial so we're blessed with that uh, it's something that even republicans can get behind so and i, I believe it's originally a, a an issue that kind of came up during ronald reagan's presidency and he signed off on it so so uh it i, I see a lot of potential there uh, there's a lot of other things we need when it comes to fighting poverty um especially here in america with with health care um uh, I mean, that's just that's not even uh, isolated to poverty. That's everybody. We, we need to find a solution to that. Um, and, and so at least for the EITC, it's it's something I think most people can can jump on board. So it's it's been fun. Your work with that nonprofit is not the only role that you've thrown yourself into since your 2018 campaign. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're now a member of the board of the One Country Project. Donald Trump's trade wars have hit American farmers, uh, rural Americans in particular. Why has the Trump administration pursued policies that have hurt Americans in rural communities? Yeah, I mean, you look at what he's done and Abby Finkenauer, the congresswoman from the next uh, uh, district over in northeast, northeastern Iowa, which is the first district, uh, she talks about this trade war being started on a tweet from Trump. And and that's true. And, and so uh, we feel the brunt. We as the fourth district feel the brunt of this trade war probably more than or as much as any district in America. And uh, farmers have their backs against the wall. But even if we solved the tariffs and the trade war right now, farmers are still not uh, in a good situation. We've had five consecutive years of low commodity prices. Farmers have been squeezed on the input side and on the output side as a result of uh, agriculture monopolies and, and these multinational corporations. And as a result, less than 15 cents makes it back to the cons- uh, of the consumer dollar makes it back to the farmer, which is lowest all time. And so we have all these things. And then you throw in uh, to combat climate change and the flooding that we're seeing here. Uh, farmers are, are struggling. And, and uh, I would say we're in a farm crisis uh, and, and, and we're just we need advocates and that's one thing I've been trying to push for. And, and especially since the election, uh, there's not a, a lot of Democrats anymore that are in these rural areas. And my political heroes are, are Berkeley Bedell, who was a congressman here in Iowa for a long time, and Tom Harkin, who was a senator here for a long time in Iowa. And and we don't have Democrats like that anymore. Democrats who are fighting for farmers and, and fighting for uh, working class folks in in that's why I kind of got going a little bit is is there's a lot of reasons. King's awful, but we also on the Democratic side, we don't have candidates like what we used to uh, uh, pushing some of these agendas. And, and that's one thing I'm, I'm looking to do. 
And uh, it's not absolute honor to be on a board with two former senators, uh, both Heidi Heitkamp and Joe Donnelly. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to uh, work with them. They were doing a, a, a debate watch party in Ames, Iowa uh, here, as, and that's our first big event. Um, and I'm really excited about that. And that's coming up next week. You, you highlighted there some of the challenges that farmers are facing. How can politicians truly resolve those? And do you think politicians recognize that there's a crisis that farmers are facing in America? Do you think they're just ignoring the problem or do you think they're just unaware of it because they've not spoken to the individuals that are directly affected by these policies? Yeah, I think it's a little column A and a little column B. Um, a lot of what uh, I'm seeing, at least, are uh, you look at the presidential campaigns and not too many of them are from the Midwest. And uh, the, you, you just it, it's it's difficult here because I think they want to have a vision for rural America. But the best vision I've seen so far is actually from a congressman from Silicon Valley uh, named Ro Khanna. And he was in the state last week, and he, he's working on a couple different projects. And one of them is bringing uh, tech jobs and $70,000 tech jobs to these rural areas. And that's a game changer. Uh, the local newspaper, who's been uh, the journalist who's been in economic development for over 20 years, said this is the biggest advancement of economic development that, that he's seen in that area in, in that time. And... And so uh, I always talked about, you know what, we need, Democrats need to raise the minimum wage. But in, in this district, in a lot of these rural areas, it's the fight for 60000 70000 and $80,000 jobs. And those are the things that are really going to uh, change these, these rural districts. And so um, trying to – I'm doing all I can to, to push these candidates uh, on some of the issues. And – it's fascinating to me. We, we've had these battles 100 years ago, and you look at what Teddy Roosevelt did and William Taft did. They, they had all these uh, – uh, Roosevelt had 45 antitrust lawsuits, and Taft had over 90 antitrust lawsuits. And America's history is in, has deep roots in breaking up monopolies to, to help the individual, and it's very democratic. And – and to have more markets for our farmers, but farmers are being squeezed so much that that uh, I, I think we're going to have the same battle uh, that we we've already uh, battled a hundred years ago. I think history is repeating itself right now, and we don't have too many folks at the forefront of this issue. And the, the interesting thing to me is we have a, a senator here in this in the state of Iowa, uh, Chuck Grassley, who's a Republican, and he talks about a lot of this stuff. If you look at his tweets, you'd think he's he's a, a progressive Democrat, uh, but he he doesn't really fall through too much on a lot of this. But um, I, I'm I'm pushing the candidates all I can because I think this is not only a winning issue, it's the right issue, too, because we could really help farmers. Because at the end of the day, you look at these multinational corporations, whether it's a farmer up here because of these trade wars, uh, a lot of uh, the the global supply chain has moved down to South America. Uh, these multinational corporations are going to get their money one way or the other. I'm trying to fight to make sure that, that the Iowa farmer is, is taken care of. 
that the Trump administration has handed out renewable fuel standard waivers that are meant for small refineries to oil and gas giants like ExxonMobil and Chevron. Senator Amy Klobuchar called Donald Trump's actions an, quote, abuse of these waivers. Why is the Trump administration's approach to RFS waivers problematic and how does it impact those that are meant to receive them when they're handed to these large organizations? Absolutely. So the Trump administration has not denied one of these waivers. And as a result, we've seen uh, in December, uh, ExxonMobil in, in Montana received a quote unquote small refinery waiver. And so to have uh, this huge oil conglomerate that makes $20 billion a year uh, to be considered a small refinery it is a joke. And so as a result, what we're seeing here in Iowa is the grain, these corn that was meant to be blended into our fuel supply through ethanol and biofuels, it's being left in the bin. And as a result, we have uh, oversupply and, and surplus so that's driving down our corn prices up to 40 cents a bushel. So here, our own government is choosing big oil and the oil industry over uh, our farmers. And, and it's not just the farmers, it's the ripple effect, because these uh, ethanol plants, they're mostly in rural areas. They're uh, quality jobs. They're American jobs in and here, the, the Trump administration is just disregarding that. And, and I'm glad you brought this up because a lot of our national media will talk about how Trump brought E15 and it was a campaign promise. Well, he waited till uh, a week or a month before the election to uh, announce it. And yet, if you do the math, what he did with the, the waivers way outweighs the uh, uh, what's happening with E15. And so even though E15 will, will give a glimmer of hope, it's that shiny object that's in one hand. Meanwhile, on the other hand, they're just undercutting the whole industry. And, and so basically where we're at right now is the oil industry dictates what happens to these, refi or to, uh, to these waivers. And, and so the way I view it is uh, Coke controls Pepsi so how well is Pepsi going to do, you know, and and when your competitor owns you and, and dictates what happens, you don't have much of a shot. And so that's what we're seeing out there. Do you think that's indicative of how the Trump administration claims that it works for the small businessman, the small farmer out there by putting policies out there, as you said, shortly before an election? But when it comes to the actual reality of the situation, the decisions they make have a bigger benefit for organizations and actually start to hurt the smaller farmer, the smaller refineries that exist out there. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's several levels and several layers of uh, this administration hurting our farmers and it, it's adding up and and. That's one thing that I'm trying to drive the narrative of, and, I, I, and one country, I believe, is, is trying to do the same, and saying, hey, listen, folks, this is not a president who is, uh, he, I know he promised a lot, but he, he's not delivering. He's, he's a lot of talk, and 
uh, Connie Schultz, who is uh, Senator Sherrod Brown's uh, wife, she's an amazing journalist, and she, I had to hear a chance to hear her speak recently, and she said, uh, you got to question the people who are heroes in their own story. And I feel that's what's happening with Trump. Trump loves to brag about things he's done, but I think we need to be honest, and, and it's very important for journalism to hold him accountable for the things that that he's hurting us as, as well. And so uh, I'm 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 trying to to shine a light on some of these things and and being a voice for the farmers who who they need more help than anybody else right now in in America, or as as much as anybody else right now in America. Since you mentioned that you're considering running for office again, let's turn to a few policy areas which you have talked about in the past. During your last campaign in 2018, healthcare dominated the conversation at your events and town halls during the campaign. It's still an issue that is important to voters now. What healthcare policy do you support? Do you support a public option, Medicare for all, a different policy, a combination of some options that have been put out there? Where's your stance on healthcare? Yeah. Uh, all of it. <laughs> we're we're so need in need of this. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think our goal is Medicare for all. Um, I don't. I I hope we can get there. Uh, if it means putting a public option first um, or, or just having a Medicare buy-in or, or anything, I, I, we have to get this done. Like universal health care is so long overdue in, in America and especially uh, here in, in the 4th District because we're the, the system is based on employer insurance, which is a bizarre situation because farmers – are their own employees. <laughs> I mean, they're self-employed. So like they're not getting uh, it from, from anybody. And, and uh, in this district, healthcare costs are going up and accessibility is going down in almost every gas station in this district. When I fill up my car, there's a donation box for someone who just got sick or someone who just got in an accident. And we have to beg to pay our medical expenses. And you look at GoFundMe, it's one in three GoFundMe sites are to pay for uh, medical expenses. And, and it's just, I don't care what it is. I'm not going to get caught up with uh, uh, what we have to have. Uh, my goal is Medicare for all, but if, if it's something else, we can't let uh, the perfect get in the way of the good. As opposed to yourself and other Democrats who want to expand healthcare and access to healthcare, Republicans want to repeal parts of all the whole of the Affordable Care Act. How much of an impact would a repeal or part repeal of the ACA have on Iowans? Drastically. And, and what we would see, not only as far as the individuals, you'll see rural hospitals, uh, uh, because they want to cut Medicare and Medicaid as well. And so they, as in Republicans. And so if that happens, you're going to see these rural hospitals uh, closing down. You're going to see nursing homes close down. Um, we're, we're, that's going all in the wrong direction. We need to start taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other. And, and 
not only that, like economically, uh, I have friends who want to start a, a business, but they have, both of them have little kids. They can't, uh, take that risk to get off health insurance to, to start a company. We're, we're, uh, holding ourselves back economically. And you look at small businesses, they're not able to compete, uh, with the benefit side to these, these major corporations, uh, that can offer benefits. And so, uh, we're really just struggling. And then you look at globalization. Well, we're shipping, uh, factory jobs into countries that healthcare is paid by their government and not by the, their employer. So it's cheaper for them. And our employee, our employers are, are, are paying an arm and a leg, uh, to, to provide something for their, uh, employees as well. And so, all this just doesn't add up. We, we need to solve this. And you look up north, up in Canada, and how did they get universal health care? It was Saskatchewan farmers that, that really started the movement. And I think we should be able to do the same here in Midwest farmers. Uh, I'm calling on them to help me uh, push that initiative and, and having folks uh, across the aisle because we all see that this is um, one of the number – I mean, it's the number one issue that, that we need to solve. You face a difficult challenge, whatever office that you see. Iowa is quite a red state. The seat that you ran in in 2018 was deep red. The governor of Iowa is a Republican. Despite all of that, you want to make it even harder for yourself when it comes to your campaign because you decided to rely on individual donations when you ran in 2018, refusing to take corporate PAC money. Why did you believe it was an important step to make that decision and refuse to take corporate money? Yeah, I think the number one thing with that is we're allowing corporations and uh, special interests to dictate our democracy here. And that is not what I believe the United States is all about. And so uh, I thought that was a way we could show that we we are going to be a, a different type of campaign. We're not going to just go to D.C. and and just uh, go there just to uh, raise money and pass laws that that benefit these special interests that gives you uh, money uh, for your campaigns. That system is crooked, and and we need to change that. And that actually was probably the number one thing of crossover votes I got from, from people who were Republicans who voted for me. Uh, that's the one thing we could agree on is, is that the amount of uh, special interest and in everything in, in, in corporations that, that benefit from our uh, policy making, uh, it, it's corrupting DC. And, and it, it's really fascinating for me to, to have these conversations with all different people from all different political backgrounds. And uh, I think it's becoming more and more um, uh, of a, a thing that we see as a potential uh, that, that can resolve. But it's also interesting. I haven't heard one Republican uh, being, being able to do the same thing. And so I, I would like to see that happen uh, in the foreseeable future where uh, campaign contributions are, are just from people. And, and eventually uh, I would like to find a way that 
you don't have to just be a, a wealthy um, um, person to run for Congress. I started every town hall, and we did one in all 39 counties last cycle with this quote. And I said that the average person in Congress at that time was 58 years old with a net worth of a million dollars, and I'm different. I'm 20 years younger and about a million dollars short of that average. And that really just set the tone for the, the rest of the town hall. You say that you got a significant number of crossover votes from individuals across the aisle who agreed with what you were doing when it came to campaign finance. But do you think there's an appetite in Congress from both parties to push for campaign finance reform? Or do you think that politics has got to a place now where so many elected officials rely on corporate PAC money, rely on the donations they get from special interests, that there's no way of realistically getting campaign finance reform through Congress? I, I, I mean, I'm, an, opti- I'm an optimist. I, I would like to see something to be done. Like, uh, I know a lot of folks talk about ending Citizen United and that ruling, but that wouldn't solve everything. We, we need to go beyond that. And um, it, it's just it's so frustrating because the reason we don't have universal health care, even though that the majority of Americans are for it, is because of special interests. The reason we haven't uh, been stronger with climate change to date uh, is the oil industry and that special interest. Uh, the reason uh, the agriculture industry is the way it is right now is because of special interest. The reason pharmaceutical prices are ridiculously high, it's because of the ph- special interest, all this. And so, like, I get asked all the time, what's your number one issue if you could do one thing? And I would love for it to be health care. Uh, but if we don't get money out of politics, we can't solve a lot of our issues in in getting back to we the people, um, it, it's I think that's the root of what's going wrong with with D.C. You support the Second Amendment, but at the same time, you also support universal background checks for gun purchases and a ban on assault style weapons. What would you say to those who believe you can't support the Second Amendment and also push for stricter gun control laws? Uh, I mean, the biggest pushback we got was from people who uh, like to hunt. And and if you're a responsible citizen uh, and and you, you like your guns, you'll be able to keep your guns. Uh, my neighbor has five AR-15s. He has a truck the size of Texas and caucus for Trump. And we both agree. Like, I don't care that he has those guns. He's responsible. I know him. But what we do both care about is the fact that the shooter in Parkland, the shooter in Las Vegas, the shooter at Sandy Hook, the shooter at Orlando, and, and on and on and on, we we got to find a way to to solve this. So this is an epidemic that's happening in our culture and we got to find solutions. And again, this goes back to special interest. This is the NRA um, uh, dictating a lot of what's happening. And, and uh, the amount of Republicans who uh, take uh, NRA money 
and and just allow for this to happen. Like it's, I visited my nieces last week and they just got out of school and and here they are in in first grade and they have to um, go through shooter training. Like it, it's it breaks my heart. And, and for one side to just completely ignore and, and not be willing to do anything with it, it is ridiculous. With gun control being a, another controversial issue among members of Congress, there's those on the Republican side who any attempt that is made to address strict gun control laws, they claim is an assault on the Second Amendment. When you've got that level of opposition as an individual yourself that supports the Second Amendment, how do we convince those individuals and explain to them why it is important to act and introduce those stricter laws? Yeah, I mean, you look at the Second Amendment and we all realize you can't have like a tank and you can't have certain weapons. You can't have a nuclear weapon and and things like that. And so there's already a line drawn. And so I feel that that we should come together and have an agreement on on where that line should be drawn and and come together as a nation to put this as a priority for our the sake of our children. Um, it's I mean, I live in a district that we like to go hunting. That's not going to be affected by this. You don't take AR-15s deer hunting in uh, um, it, it just. I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm searching for solutions in, in all this, and it's it's just it's it's troubling to see that um, I'm a, uh, I'm a sports fan, and pretty much every college and and professional sporting stadium, uh, you get funneled out into these narrow uh, 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 walkways and. And nobody has the right to take a gun and just wipe out a bunch of people in these narrow pathways. And that scares the crap out of me that somebody could potentially do that. And and we just need to to figure out what uh, a, a common way for a common sense solution to all this. Automatic voter registration is a topic that's come to the forefront of debate. We saw that in 2018, where there were voter suppression efforts in certain states that many would argue had a significant impact and potentially swung results in certain areas. Why is it so important to have automatic voter registration to get everyone on the ballot? Yeah, I'm all for automatic voter registration. I think as a uh, nation that, that uh, takes pride in their democratic ways, I think any way we can promote um, having more people engaged in the conversation uh, is, is a good thing. Um, here in Iowa, we had voter ID laws that have been passed that will go into effect for the first time this cycle that are going to cause some turmoil. And they're going to it's going to be harder for college students. It's going to be harder for uh, adults who don't drive um, to to vote and to make sure we have the proper IDs and everything. And so uh, and it's a confusing law, too. Like like 
there was very active, uh, uh, not only beyond voters, like uh, party members that went to vote in a special election. I, I believe it was a, a council, city council special election that were deprived of voting and they had to go back home, which was a 20 minute drive to get their license because they uh, thought like one thing was considered a, a valid ID when it was not. And so uh, it's going to drive confusion and, and all that stuff. And and that's not good for our democracy. We got to get everybody engaged in uh, whatever it is. There, there is a level of complacency, which is frustrating for people like me who want change. But it's also uh, a huge opportunity. And that's what the biggest thing that I'm trying to do and what we tried to do in the last cycle was uh, get folks engaged who have not been engaged. And we saw record number for midterm uh, turnout in the last cycle. And we are all anticipating uh, a very active caucus, Iowa caucus. And then uh, that will result also into a very active uh, general election in November. And so, um, yeah, there's a, <laughs> to, to me, that just uh, sounds like a lot of work to be done. Do you think that making Election Day a national holiday would ensure that individuals who find themselves unable to vote because of their employment situation would be able to participate in the election process? I need to do, look a little bit more on that. I My instinct is yes. Like that sounds I've been talking about that for several years that I think it'd be better for society if it was. Um, I'm worried that it'll turn into uh, people just going on a long vacation uh, <laughs> uh, like we do with other holidays. Um, so I I would like to test it out on, on some level. I think it would happen in a state before it would happen federally. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm eager to see where it goes. J.D. Shulton, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. That was J.D. Shulton, the 2018 Democratic candidate in Iowa's 4th Congressional District. You can find out more about him on Twitter at J.D. Shulton. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a 5-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.